I am uh, standing before you this morning with kind of mixed emotions in some respects. I was telling Brian Friday as uh, we were getting the slides and everything ready that with the changes in software and everything else, I'm finally beginning to feel old, trying to keep up with it. But by the same token, after such a long period of time, going from back when, when I used to present somewhere between 130 and 140 lessons a year down to zero of this nature, I'm beginning to feel more and more like that 15-year-old kid that gave his first one back in Akron, Ohio, many years ago. But I am uh, most happy to, to have an opportunity to, to speak to you. Some of the things to discuss, uh, as uh, Mitch indicated, the studies in, in uh, Revelation that we have been engaged in. Brother Jeffries and I have, have uh, talked from time to time about, you know, we could probably sit down at, at the Cheesecake Factory and over a nice slice of strawberry cheesecake come up with about three or four hours on most of the subjects in the book of Revelation. And then trying to convince, dense those down into just a, a few moments where we can actually speak about them or discuss them in class, uh, it, it, it kind of humbles us trying to, to come up with exactly how we can, can do that. So this morning I would like to present to you not necessarily a lesson from the book of Revelation, but possibly a way to, to study it, if we can, can use that term. And I'd like to look at the four writers that are contained there in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation as, as the basic theme. But to begin with, I'd like to uh, go back and, and take a look, if I can remember how to operate this thing. There we go. Isaiah, there's a few of the, the, the snowbirds that used to come to Phoenix quite often, and, and every time they would come into to the auditorium where I was, they'd say that Don somehow or other has a way of getting back into Isaiah, and it feels like they never left because they just go from Isaiah to Isaiah to Isaiah. But Isaiah fills up so much of the New Testament, and especially the references which go on into the book of Revelation, that it's always a good place to start. Especially when you start looking at the thing that, that is said here, when he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And that's what we want to do in our classes, is reason together. Why are the things which are being discussed true? And how are they to be understood? And that is not readily apparent from the way in which they are written. And it does require a great deal of diligence, as Paul told Timothy. Give diligence or apply yourself vigorously to the studies of God's word. So come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And that is in the opening chapter of, of the book of Isaiah. And when you start looking at chapter 6 of the book of Revelation... Immediately, you are confronted with four different colors. And a lot of people like to home in on those colors. 
But one of the big problems is, is understanding those colors completely, is there is no place in Scripture that it tells you exactly what the colors mean like it does here in Isaiah. Here, red, scarlet, crimson, those various shades of red are sin. And the whiteness and the color like wool, fresh, fresh lamb's wool. I don't know how many woolies you've been associated with, but that wool is not necessarily pure white. But the washing and the cleansing of that wool can produce a very white, shiny uh, yarn. So white as snow is the purity, and red is the sin. And it's very clear from a passage like this. Not necessarily so elsewhere, especially when you look at the four chariots in the book of Zechariah, which are the four colors of red, black, white, and gray, or dappled gray. <clears throat> when we look at the, the writers themselves, and we'll take, I like to look at, at the writers and what is the import of the job and the task that they have been given to do as opposed to the colors. We can sometimes get bogged down with color and, and miss the subject. These are written, as, as uh, Sean has pointed out in class, in apocalyptic terms. A lot of people look at the apocalypse as being the end of time. In other words, what happens when Christ comes again and time as we know it comes to an end and eternity begins. But that has nothing to do with this idea of apocalypse or apocalyptic. It is not end of time events and it's not forecast of what's going to happen at the end of time. <clears throat> it is written as a encouragement to people who are in great turmoil and tribulation. If you want to look at the specifics of it, apocalypsis means strictly a revelation, an unveiling, an unfolding, describing those things which in and of themselves, you cannot determine what they mean. And so it is something which cannot be known unless it is given to us. And so God, through Christ and John the Apostle, has given to us a picture of certain things which we cannot in and of ourselves know and discern. And that is the book of Revelation. If you want to know what's going to happen at the end of time, you want to get involved with eschatological studies. And that's one of them long-handled $4 words that merely means what are the events of the end of time. In Scripture, we have such passages as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15 through 18. It talks about Christ coming again and us being caught up with him into the clouds and there we will ever be. And over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where it talks about the end of the physical realm being burnt up and completely destroyed and gone. These things are end-of-time events, not necessarily so in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> well, what we do have in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, is Jesus' warnings and previews of what's coming in the future. Now, as he was talking to his di disciples, 
specifically now uh, talking to them in that upper room after the final Paschal feast, after the institution of the Lord's Supper, after the washing of the feet, and all of those other things that happened in that upper room, he goes through a series of things which are shortly going to come to pass. That's also the way it's described in the book of Revelation. These are an unveiling of the things which will shortly come to pass. And so we have Jesus telling the disciples things that are shortly come to pass, and we know that there he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about their journeys out into the world and the things that they're going to run into in the world as they begin to spread the gospel throughout the world and what's going to happen to them there. But there is a checklist almost that he presents to them. And even though it's partially in Mark and some in Ma and, uh, uh, Matthew and all, if we look at, at the one which is here in Mark chapter 13, there's a description now of the things that, that are going to come about as soon as, as they begin spreading the gospel. And he says, number one, I do not want you to be misled. I do not want anyone to mislead you. So see to it that you are not misled. Many will come into my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning, not the end. These things are the beginning. And you see them beginning immediately as the gospel began to proceed from Jerusalem throughout all of the world. You see that Many were coming up and claiming to be the Christ and trying to lead many away. It happened in the first century. It happened in the second century. It happens today with individuals trying to come and tell you what you need to be saved. And don't pay any attention to what those verses in the Bible mean. Here's what you really need to know. It still happens today. When we look at the idea of wars and rumors of wars, that's been continuous. If you are a student of history, and we got a history teacher or two in here that can inform you if you want evidence of it, there has always been somewhere on the face of this earth a war going on. Quite often in the history of the United States from the 1700s all the way through till today, we have been engaged in a conflict of some kind or other. Even during the Cold War, there was still a lot of shooting going on that a lot of people didn't know about. But we were in continual conflict in one place or the other, either Central America, South America, Asia. There's always been a fight going on, even when it was supposedly a time of peace. But those continue to this day, and they will continue on into the future until Christ comes again. There will be earthquakes in various places. The, the earth itself 
composed, or there is a great deal of the book of Revelation that has to do with earth, nature, the trumpets and the bowls of wrath and the things which are being discussed there after the seventh seal is opened. Those things have to do with what's common today. The earthquakes, the volcanoes, the hurricanes, the tornadoes. What on this earth is permanent? What can you depend upon? And the answer comes back, nothing. Where can you pick up something on this earth and claim that it is yours and you will keep it forever? The answer comes back, it doesn't happen. It can't be. It's not that way. So everything about this earth is designed to convince you that this isn't your home. This is not where you want to be. But there is a far grander place which has been prepared where these things do not exist. That's where you want to be. And then we come to the idea of famines. And the famines which have taken place in various parts of the earth because of nature itself denying rain or rain coming too much or the wars and the various other pestilences which exist which have caused the crops to fail and people to starve to death upon this earth it's not going to be there in heaven those aren't going to happen and to the child of god who is feeding upon the word of god there's a continual feast not famine that we have available to us. And so earthly things, physical things, are not to be desired. <clears throat> and he's giving them a hint of all of the things which are going to come, to come about. John 13 through 16, <coughs> pardon me, is his final discourse as we're talking about in, in the upper room. And we've talked about some of those things, both from lessons we've had and also in the, in the blogs that you'll find in, in uh, Family Talk, there's a tremendous amount of lessons there that he has taught. But the number one thing that he says there in chapter 14, beginning in verse 2 and 3, is the fact that he's going away. He's going away to prepare a place in his father's abode. There's many dwelling places there. And he is going away to prepare a place for his followers. But he's going to send a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to remind them of everything that he has said, all of the words that he spoke while he was with them upon this earth, and lead them into all truth. Well, a part of that truth was revealed in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came and that first sermon was preached, and the gospel of salvation through baptism into his death and rising up out of those waters as he was raised from the dead into a new life. That's part of that new thing. But there's a continuous thing which runs on through and finally the end of what the Holy Spirit is revealing, Christ is revealing by the Spirit to John, is that he is going to come quickly. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 21-22. The quickly there says, I'm going to come instantaneously. It's not going to be tomorrow. Might not be next year. But it might be. 
next second. But when I come, I am going to come quickly, instantaneously. All of those things that he was not able to preach and teach was revealed by the Holy Spirit. And several of them, no new doctrine, but explanations of them are contained in that book of Revelation. <clears throat> he concludes the, 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 this upper room dissertation, if we can refer to it as that, in verses 32 and 33 of, of chapter 16. When he says, These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. These are to give you comfort. These are to give you peace of mind. That regardless of what happens in this world, it's not going to affect your eternal soul. Have peace and know that I've got you. But in this world, you will have tribulation. And that tribulation started almost immediately. But take courage, I have overcome the world. The world is not in charge. God and his son are in charge. And so regardless of what happens, and sometimes it's going to be really bad, don't worry about it. Remember, I've got you a home prepared in heaven, and I'm going to come get you. And so as we look <clears throat> at the prayer that he makes, the real Lord's prayers in John chapter 17, not back in Matthew. The prayer that he makes also acknowledges that tribulation that's going to take place. He says in verse 14 of chapter 17 of John, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so this tribulation this, that's brought on by the hatred of the world. And you can see that hatred begin with the Jews, then extend to the Romans, and then extend to virtually all of humanity <coughs> that does not follow Christ. <coughs> When we look at Revelation chapter 5, you've got a symbolic description of, of Christ's return to his father's house. You've got the throne scene in chapter 4. You've got Christ's return in chapter 5. You've got the four living creatures, the angels of heaven, all of the hosts that are assembled there, bowing down to the Son, the Lamb that was slain, and has done exactly what the Father has directed him to do. Chapter 6 is the beginning then of the revelation of major events which are going to take place on the earth, <clears throat> if you would, leading up to the, the, the final time when he is going to come again. In general, they follow the order that Jesus described them. So in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures, and I'll let Sean draw you a picture of those living creatures, and it is the existing Ezekiel there with everything, the throne scene and the four living creatures moving about the face of the earth, taking vengeance upon the sinful. <clears throat> I'm no good at drawing those kind of pictures. 
But I heard one of these four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> and almost immediately when you see that white horse, everybody wants to jump in there and identify what that white horse is. Mm. A.T. Robertson has this statement, and I think it's, it's appropriate. He says, commentators have been busy identifying the rider of the white horse according to their various theories. And here, here is, is one of the problems with the various books and commentaries you can pick up on to study the book of Revelation. At one time, I had 11 books on Revelation in my library. Most of them I have given away. The two that I really wanted to have to study on, uh, I gave to, to, to uh, Alan Greeley, and he's got them someplace rather now. But the, the fact remains is that all of the various ones say something different. One of the problems is that there are allusions to these things in the Old Testament. There are allusions to these things in the New Testament. But there is no direct quotation where you can go back and say, this is that. And so as, as uh, A.T. Robertson points out, the commentators all identify the writers by their own theological theories. It is tempting to identify him as the writer of the white horse in Revelation chapter 19 and 11. That one is unmistakable. He wears the white crown of the priest with the words holiness to God upon it, which is the high priest in the Old Testament. And he has also got the diadem, which is the royal priest. That's the crown of the king. He's got the two-edged sword and he's got the name written and everything else. He's, he's identified. That's the Christ. And so people say, white horse, white horse. It's got to be the Christ. Well, again, come let us reason together. Is there some logic in, in picking that? Tempting. But as he says, the two writers have nothing in common except for the fact that they're on a white horse. And so is it Christ? It may be. There are some of my brethren who are hard over on that fact. There are others who are not. They're just as adamant about that white horse as Ogden was, Art Ogden was, about the fact that Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, and Homer Haley was adamant about it, the fact that it was written in 95 AD, and the two of them couldn't talk about anything else other than that argument that they had about the date of Revelation, which is the least important thing we can say about the book. But our brethren have been caught up with that argument about this white horse. <coughs> then I saw a lamb who broke one of the seven seals, and here comes the white horse. Now notice the accoutrements. That's what the white horse and the rider have, the implements that they have. And he who sat on it had a bow. That word is used one time in the scripture, and it's right here. Bow is kind of like the word love in English. 
When we use the word love, the Greek used four different terms. When we use the word bow, B-O-W, there are three terms. Are we talking about the bow, like you tie a ribbon into a bow? Are you talking about bow, which is bowing the knee before the great I am? Or are you talking about the bow, which is an implement of war? or an implement of hunting, or an implement of sport. This particular one has to do with a, a uh, bow which is used as by an archer to scatter out the arrows throughout a population. And now Old Testament references to the bow of Judah which is going to be armed with the arrows of Ephraim. And it refers to the fact of the scattering out of Israel, the northern kingdom, throughout the nations. But the, the, the concept here is this individual has a bow, and that bow is going to scatter something. We're not identified. It doesn't tell us what the ammunition is. He's given a crown, and this crown is a seraphim. Seraphim is one of those words kind of like grace. When you ask somebody, what is grace? And they'll say, it's unmerited favor. Well, there's a whole lot more to it than that. A seraphim is a hat, a crown, a wreath, which is given to an individual to mark his office or his designated responsibilities and or duties of the time. Yes, it was given to a winner of a contest. But it was also given to a, an official as a mark of his position as the governor of a province when he shows up for a formal uh, event. So we have an individual who has been given a crown or a wreath on his head which symbolizes an honor or a mark of distinction or a position or an office which has been given to him. And he went out to conquering and to conquer, to show that he was victorious. In other words, he has a horse, he has a bow, he's got an office symbol on his head, and he's going out to accomplish something. <clears throat> exactly what that is, we're not specifically told. And so as we look at him, I'm always reminded of this verse, and I keep going back to it in Proverbs. When we start talking about these horses and these chariots and these various other officials sent out to do things. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. There is a job that needs to be done, and the horse is the vehicle that is going to carry the champion to it. But the victory belongs to the Lord. Enemies ride horses. Enemies ride horses. Enemies ride chariots. But the Lord has the victory. Ahab went to war in a chariot, drawn by the strong horses, prepared specifically for the battle. But he didn't win the battle because a lone archer someplace or other just kind of threw an arrow and threw it out there and it directed by God, hit Ahab and killed him. 
battle belongs to the Lord. I think we've got a song that goes along that line. We can make all kinds of preparations, but God's the winner. What's the story of book of Revelation? Regardless of what happens and whether this is looked at as the gospel going out by the apostles and scattered over the world, or we look at it from the fact that it might be the Antichrist or those who are opposed to Christ going out throughout the world and stirring up the trouble which brings about the wars and the various other things. What follows? There's a red horse. And the one given to him is to make wars and cause all kinds of problems there. And then we have the black horse. And the one with the balance in his hand which brings about a status of commerce where you have one-eighth of the amount that would normally be bought with a day's wages available now. When you used to buy eight bushels for a day's wage, now you can only buy one. Inflation. And what happens when you have inflation? It reduces the population to a state of poverty. And in that poverty, what comes next? The fourth seal. I heard a voice in the fourth living creature saying, look, and here is an ashen horse. Some of your, new uh, some of your more modern translations have a green horse in there. And I don't know how many of you have seen corpses that have laid out for a day or two but they have a gray-green color, and that's the color that's being described right here. Dead bodies all over the place. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had a name, Death and Hades, was following him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth, death. There's a sequence that happens down through here with the tribulations, bringing about wars, bringing about death in the end. The fifth seal, though, you can see what happened to those Old Testament saints who were reserved for the time when Christ would come, offer his blood to buy them their salvation, and here is presented to him them the, the white robe. It is something that... Uh, is going to be there, and they are reserved until what's left for you and I. There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they would rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be complete also. The tribulation continues, and you and I are in that world that Jesus says, as long as you're in the world, the world will hate you. You're going to have tribulation. And I sometimes wonder, in the peace and comfort that we have today, are we actually doing all for Christ that we need to be doing? Is the world persecuting us and hating us enough to convince the righteous judge that we are indeed the follower of Christ? I worry about that. So I'll leave you 
with some things to think about. And when Sean gets up here, he gets around to that chapter 6, he's going to give you a few more things to think about. <clears throat> but remember, we're not in this world to have a good time. We're in this world with a job to do, and that job to do is to go out and convince others that there is a God in heaven and there is a Christ that he has sent and that Christ has shed his blood to offer them a home in heaven. And we are the messengers now sent out into the world. Maybe we're part of the ones that were scattered through the world by the bow of that white rider to do our part in increasing the kingdom of God? If so, are we doing our part? If you're here this morning and not a part of the battle for Christ, you need to be. If you're here this morning or once engaged in that battle, then you have quit. You need to return. If you have a need this morning, let it be known while we stand and sing. <clears throat>